Find all the case information you need faster. Smart litigators rely on Bloomberg Law's broad litigation news coverage and our market-leading dockets. Now with AI-driven search and analytics, customized alerts, and expansive state court coverage. Visit pro.bloomberglaw.com for everything you need to win. On today's episode, we're going to give you the lowdown on all the legal activities swirling around college athletics. And to do that, we'll need to hear from not one, not two, but three reporters. Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So I consider myself a sports fan, and college basketball is my favorite sport. But I have to be honest, even I found it difficult to keep track of all the legal goings-on involving the National Collegiate Athletics Association, better known, of course, as the NCAA. The floodgates really opened back in 2021 when the Supreme Court unanimously ruled against the NCAA in a case called Alston which helped pave the way for athletes to profit off of NIL, their name, image, and likeness. We did a whole series on that on our sister podcast, Uncommon Law. It's definitely worth checking out. Since Alston, it seems like almost every legal or labor dispute the association has been involved in has gone against the NCAA. Just late last week, a federal judge said it has to allow schools to offer NIL packages to prospective athletes, which the NCAA fears will open the door to schools just basically paying recruits to attend. Next week, men's basketball players at Dartmouth College will take a vote on whether they want to form a union, something the NCAA also tried and failed to stop. Ahead of this big vote, we thought we'd bring in several Bloomberg Law reporters who are covering all these developments to bring us up to speed on everything that's been going on. In a bit, you'll hear from Katie Arsiri about the antitrust issues the NCAA is now facing and the big class action suit that just got certified. And Diego Arias Munoz will talk about why the NCAA may have given up fighting in court and is now looking toward Capitol Hill. But first, we start with the Dartmouth vote. Bloomberg Law's Parker Purifoy tells us why this election is different than a similar one from a decade ago and what will actually be on the ballot next week. Yeah, so the men's basketball players are voting to decide if they want to unionize with SEIU. It's a big deal because this is going to be the first time that you know student-athletes are voting in a unionization election and their ballots are going to be counted. And a National Labor Relations Board regional director has determined that they should be counted as employees. Now, Parker, I will admit I kind of had deja vu here when I heard about this news because I seem to remember uh, another group of athletes at Northwestern University trying to do this 10 years ago and failing. Um, What's different now? Why are the athletes at Dartmouth succeeding where the Northwestern athletes didn't? Yeah, so the Northwestern football team, they petitioned to unionize back in 2014, and they did hold an election, but back in 2014, the board's rules were different. So back then, if there were underlying litigation over the bargaining unit in question, then the board would not count any of the ballots from the election until that issue was resolved. So the Northwestern football players' ballots were never counted. No one knows whether the union would have won the the election or not. But this time, since the board's rules are different, the ballots are going to be counted. 
back in 2014, the NLRB, they, I guess, pardon the pun, but they punted on the issue. <laughs> they, uh, they declined to assert jurisdiction over the players. And they said that they didn't want to create an unstable labor market within the conference by asserting jurisdiction over Northwestern and not any of the other teams, if that makes sense. It, it does, although it sounds like uh, what's changed is not so much athletics, but what's changed is the NLRB. It sounds like they are much less worried about creating a unstable labor market, and they're much bolder now. Would you agree with that? Well, the so the board has yet to issue a final ruling on the Dartmouth petition. So it went through a regional director. The regional director approved the vote. And the school has um, appealed that up to the board. So the board is still going to have to rule on that. So it's, it's still left to be seen whether the board will uphold that decision. However, I think that there are a lot of good indications why this time might be different than back in 2014. I think that we do have an NLRB that's a lot more... Um, willing to expand workers' rights, and we certainly have uh, a general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, who um, has been very vocal about her support for student-athletes. And I, and I think that the culture has just shifted around that question. I think back in 2014, that was seen as like a very extreme position, and now I think everyone's talking about it, and it's become a much more mainstream issue, I guess. Well, let's move on, uh, you know, to an even bigger issue, as big as the vote at Dartmouth will be. There's another case from another group of athletes at the NLRB, and this one is out of USC, the University of Southern California. This one could be even bigger. And can you get into why a lot of people are saying that, you know, the Dartmouth case is sort of the appetizer and this is the main course here? Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I would say that the Dartmouth vote is very symbolically important, but I guess, like you mentioned, the, the bigger battle is going on um, in a case, it involves the University of Southern California, it involves the NCAA, and the Pac-12 conference, so all three of them together. The NLRB General Counsel, she charged all of them jointly with misclassifying the players as student-athletes and not employees. And she's also arguing that the three, those three entities are joint employers of the players. Yeah, that's that's huge. The joint employer thing that you mentioned, because that would mean that instead of one school like Dartmouth having to negotiate with its players one on one, you'd have an entire conference like the Pac-12 or any other conference really negotiating with all of its players. Yeah, yeah. I think it's Abruzzo's way of trying to get around that jurisdiction issue that the board had back in 2014. If she can prove that the conference is employing the players or that the NCAA is employing the players, then all of the players in the NCAA or all of the players in the conference would fall under the board's purview. Even, I guess, theoretically, it, this is this is what Abruzzo is arguing, that all of the players at a public institution would then fall under the board's jurisdiction. It, I think it also goes a little bit further in outlining what a potential bargaining unit in the future would look like with student athletes as employees. 
so in professional sports like the National Hockey League, for example, the, the players, all of the players in the league are one bargaining unit. They don't organize team by team, but instead they all negotiate with the league as their employer. So I think that she's trying to make a, a, a similar situation here. Yeah. Well, let's turn to you, Katie. Um because, you know, the NCA, as we just discussed, has some significant labor issues, but they also have antitrust issues. Uh, can you get into this class action lawsuit that was filed and just certified recently, I guess, last year? Uh, what's that about and why did it get certified? Yeah, we've seen a lot of antitrust scrutiny uh, against the NCA. Um, over the past year alone, dozens of lawsuits. This was a particularly interesting suit in which um, college athletes won class action status. They had accused the NCAA of denying them compensation for the use of their likeness. And I get the sense these are former athletes, right, who say, you know, well, I didn't get to benefit from the new NIL rules that all these new athletes are, are benefiting from. And I need uh, back pay, essentially. Do I have that right? Well, they were football and basketball players that say that they were cheated out of billions of dollars in revenue from TV broadcasts of college tournaments, you know, their likeness being used in video games. Um, and so and the lion's share of NC2A revenue comes from TV and marketing rights. So they have, a, especially for Division One men's basketball championships. So they have a lot. There's a lot of money to be had. And they're saying that they should be entitled to it. It seems like putting a dollar amount on that would be really difficult uh, because you know this is like theoretical money that they could have earned. Uh, how would you go about doing that? I get the sense that would be a big challenge for them in, in winning this case. Yeah, well, the experts, uh, the plaintiff's experts actually took the student athlete share of each conference's broadcast revenue and for each sport, and then they use that to estimate the individual payments for each proposed class member. Um, the NC2A disputes this, and they said that there's that there's no market for broadcast NIL at all, and that there's no value attached. And the judge disagreed. They basically said the judge said that the methodology is consistent with the plaintiff's theory of liability, and that a class action was the proper vehicle for the claims. So we'll see what happens when the case goes to trial in January 2025. Yeah, I mean. Let's take a big step back here, though, because, you know, since 2021, when the Supreme Court ruled uh, in NCAA v. Alston, which was the big NIL case that kind of opened the floodgates, it seems like the NCAA has, as far as I can tell, not had a victory in court since then. Um, You know, I'm sure there's been here or there something, but they've been on a pretty remarkable losing streak. Can you talk a little bit about that and also the most recent loss that they have, which came just a few days ago? Yeah, uh, I would say that they're on an existential losing streak. <laughs> um, Charlie Baker, the former governor of Massachusetts, is the new uh, NCAA president. And he's been trying to take steps to sort of, you know, float the concept of Division One member schools paying athletes and entering into internal deals and ALT deals, um, as opposed to those deals being, you know, handled by outside parties. But a lot of antitrust attorneys I've talked to have said that there needs to be wholesale reform with the NC2A and that for greater change, they need to really recognize college athletes as employees if the goal is to reduce litigation. Just on Friday, late Friday, um, a court actually said that the NC2A's ban on college recruits negotiating NIL deals before enrolling in a school was anti-competitive. And this is a big deal because, you know, these high school recruits, you know, especially, they they have an opportunity. There's a very small window of opportunity for them to choose the right school and, and figure out their market value with various NIL opportunities. If they can't do that, that kind of deprives them from a payday. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's it's worth noting that uh, you know the Supreme Court decision in NCAA v. Alston was unanimous against the NCAA, and it just seems like lower court judges have taken note of that and are very very skeptical of almost every argument that you know that that it's making right now. Yeah, I mean, basically, all the Alston decision said that NCAA you know couldn't ban college athletes from getting compensation for their name, image, and likeness, but. The NCAA has, or AA has, like, really um, relied on its amateurism rules, which are basically, you know, the idea behind it is that, you know, you are playing, you are first and foremost a student, and you're playing for the mental health, you know, and physical aspects of the game. But there's a, the market dynamics have changed, and there's a lot of money to be had. Yeah, I'll say. Um, Diego, I want to turn to you, and specifically, I want to point out something that I read on Friday after that decision uh, about the... NIL for recruits ruling. And NCAA spokesperson said in response to that, here's what what the spokesperson said. An endless patchwork of state laws and court opinions make clear partnering with Congress is necessary to provide stability for the future of all college athletes. Partnering with Congress. Um, Let's unpack that phrase, Diego. What does the NCAA want to do in its partnership with Congress? Right. So uh, Baker is the president of the NCAA. He's a former politician, former governor of Massachusetts. He has a lot of um, connections on Capitol Hill. And the NCAA has been pushing for for some time now, I, I think at least since the Supreme Court decision, for Congress to set federal standards for NIL rights. Baker recently told the Judiciary Committee hearing that he wants lawmakers to codify student athletes and has not employees. Uh, so to clarify that those athletes are not going to be employees, which is a big issue in all of these cases that we're seeing with the NLRB and so on. So yeah, I mean, for, for they've been really trying to work their connections on the Hill to try to pass legislation that would set this kind of federal standards on all sorts of things. And it sounds like they have some willing participants in that uh, partnership. Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, who... It is worth noting, uh, is a former college football coach himself. What would their legislation do, the the mansion to reveal plan? How would that look? Right. So they, they introduced legislation last year called the PASS Act. Manchin is a former student athlete. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I think he played football. And oh. I think he actually got injured midway, so didn't like go on for a very long time. And Tuberville, like you said, worked um, as a coach. Um, yeah. So... They have this bill that would do a lot of the things that the NCAA wants. They would set a national NIL standard. They would put some restrictions on transfers. So the athlete would have to um, be at a college for, I think, at least three years before they can transfer. Yeah, and we should say, uh, as of right now, uh, the rules of transferring between schools are much lighter than that. That would be a huge change. Right. And they also would put some restrictions on the NIL, what they call the collectives, and these deals that that Manchin has said that has gone out of control. And uh, Tuberville once told me that it's the wild, wild west. So they want to put those federal standards. Manchin says that it's hard to root for a freshman or a sophomore that's making millions. It was a pretty controversial statement at the time, which goes in direct opposition to what a a lot of other lawmakers want to do. Yeah, well, let's talk about those other lawmakers, specifically Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Uh, It sounds like he uh, has 
some legislation that is very different from the Manchin-Tuberville bill. Right. So Chris Murphy, Bernie Sanders, some other progressives, they really want to expand NIL rights. They really want athletes to maximize how much they can make out of NIL rights. Chris Murphy in particular wants to make athletes define them as employees and let them collectively bargain and organize and be in a union. So you have this group of lawmakers that want to put kind of restrictions on NIL rights, and you have progressives that want almost no restrictions because they see the athletes are finally making some significant amount of money. Finally, though, um, I feel like it's a safe bet to uh, assume that Congress won't act. I think in any situation, all things being equal, it's always safe to bet that you know Congress won't take any measures because we all know about sort of the gridlock on Capitol Hill. That said... I do wonder if there really are more court rulings like the ones that Katie and Parker talked about and college athletics is really changed radically. Do you think there could be like a groundswell of support from, you know, voters saying, you know, hey, this college sports and the way that I watched it and the way that I rooted for it has totally changed. I don't like this. Congress, you need to step in and do something. Is that a scenario that you could see happening? Well, Let's start with the first part you said. Congress is facing a tough time passing a budget for the federal government. Right. So to think that they're going to regulate college athletics when they are struggling to fund agencies, um, maybe a little bit of a stretch. For sure. But having said that, um, I do think that the pressure is rising on Congress to do something, not only from the NCAA, uh, but also from some of the uh, players' associations from one way or the other, right? And I do think that some of these issues are going to remain contentious over the athletes being employees or not, or the the a federal standard for NIL rights. These are still very contentious um, issues. But there is a a different bill from Senators Blumenthal, Richard Blumenthal, and Cory Booker from New Jersey, and Republican Jerry Moran from Kansas, that has some provisions relating to health. Uh, benefits and having the some high revenue um, universities cover costs for sports related injuries mm-hmm. and at that hearing the witnesses going from Baker to you know players representatives were okay with that and the mansion Tuberville bill also has some increased health protections for the athletes so I think maybe in that space it seems like there's a little bit less controversy and more consensus that the the schools should, you know, pay for health coverage for their employees, for their, (laughs) right, for for their, for the people that say they are employees, but the schools say, no, 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 you're not employees. Right. So I think, I think that maybe in an area like that, it might be easier to find um, congressional consensus rather than the employee question and the NIL question. Those were the voices of Bloomberg Law's Diego Arias Munoz, Katie Arciri, and Parker Purifoy. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz, with help from Laura Francis. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Find all the case information you need faster. Smart litigators rely on Bloomberg Law's broad litigation news coverage and our market-leading dockets. Now with AI-driven search and analytics, customized alerts, and expansive state court coverage.
Visit pro.bloomberglaw.com for everything you need to win.